Praise the Lord. Now will be the ministry of God's word for all of us, whether on site or online. Let's do our best to focus on listening to the Lord at this time. I'd encourage you to remove anything that might distract you, like turning off alerts to messages and putting away your phone. God wants to speak to us and feed our souls today. Amen. Also, we have the sermon handout and manuscript available on our website, so go ahead and download them if it will help you. Let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to give us hungry hearts and to receive God's word today. Heavenly Father, thank you for each person that is here today online and on site. We pray no matter where we are, this sermon would be sharp to us today, judging the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts and pointing us clearly to Christ, our King and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Even though people love fairy tale endings with everyone living happily ever after, it's usually not often true in real life, is it? I think that's why these days, movies and TV series that don't have happy endings are becoming more frequent. Just think about what we've watched recently, Squid Game or even Shang-Chi. The endings are unsettled or inconclusive or even the start of new problems. We're now at the conclusion of our series of Ezra and Nehemiah, and I'll explain how this was not a happily ever after either. Let me share where we've gone so far in Ezra and Nehemiah. God worked in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to send the captive people of Israel back to Jerusalem. The exiles returned and rebuilt the temple of God. 57 years later, Ezra was sent by Artaxerxes, another Persian king, to teach the book of the law to the people. And Ezra's ministry of the word started a reformation of the people's identity as the people of God. 13 years later, after Ezra went to Jerusalem, God raised up Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of the city. And they were able to finish that work in 52 days, despite all kinds of threats. And we saw last week how God breathed spiritual life back into his people as God's word was read, taught, and seen. God's people recommitted to God's gracious covenant relationship with them. And now we get to the final part of, this, of the narrative. I'll actually summarize chapters 11 and 12, and then we'll do a deeper dive into chapter 13. So in chapter 11, the remaining tribes of Judah... Uh, the re remaining tribes of Israel, Judah, Benjamin, and some Levites, sent their tithe of leaders to move into Jerusalem. These families that moved into the city are listed in detail, and the, the, the remaining 90% of the people lived all around Judah. In Nehemiah 12, the genealogies of the priests and Levites are presented starting from those that came up with the original exiles all the way to the present time. Then all those priests, Levites, and leaders that were mentioned, they stationed themselves all over the top of the new wall and dedicated it. It was a huge celebration with choir singing and people praising God. This was a spiritual high for the people of God. But were they, were they done now? Was this it? Actually, no, it wasn't. Nehemiah's work of reforming God's people was a continuous job, as we'll see in chapter 13. 
And here's the one thing for this sermon focused on Nehemiah 13. Keep reforming as God's people until God's redemption story is done. And we'll see here now how Nehemiah had to constantly put out fires among God's people, the many ways that they wandered into sin and broke the covenant that they made with God. And we're the same too. In light of Christ, we also have to keep reforming as God's people, but with the hope that note not only are we forgiven and will change for the better, but that Jesus will come back and will finally enjoy perfect communion with God forever. I have three main points today. There are three ways that we keep reforming as God's people until God's redemption story is done. We keep reforming first in our parts in the church, second, in our practice of dependence, and third, in our pursuit of holiness. For the first way we keep reforming as God's people until God's redemption story is done, see verses 4 through 14, part, our parts in the church. And in this first part, Nehemiah constantly had to address the issue of God's people not faithfully tithing and running the temple operations, even as they learned about worship from God's word. Here's the first principle I want to elaborate on here. The church is like an ecosystem that thrives when all of God's people participate in its livelihood. These various incidents that are recorded here at various, uh, these, are, these are various incidents that are recorded here um, that happened at various times. Verses four through nine happened while Nehemiah was away from Jerusalem in his 12th year, serving as governor of Judah. Remember that King Artaxerxes had given Nehemiah a temporary leave, and at this time he was summoned back. While he was away, some cracks emerged in the covenant community. And what happened was Eliashib, who was the high priest of the temple, decided to lease out a large chamber in the courts of the temple to Tobiah to use as his personal office. This chamber was supposed to hold the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil. The Levites, singers, and gatekeepers were supposed to be using them uh, for the needs of the temple and also for their own personal needs as they worked in the temple. And this was bad because Tobiah was constantly mentioned in the book of Nehemiah as someone who was trying to sabotage the rebuilding of God's city. This was not, he was not a part of the people of God. And so he kept, set, so his setting up shop there desecrated the house of God. And the reason Eliashib, the high priest, did this was a bit of a surprise too. It says that Tobiah, who was an Ammonite, and Eliashib, who was an Israelite, were related somehow, which was also a problem that I'll explain in the third part. This was also bad because it was apparent that the space in the temple was not being utilized correctly. And the result for this is seen in verses 10 through 14, which I'd like to read. Nehemiah 13, 10 through 14. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. And so I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. 
Then all Judah brought the tithe of the wine, grain, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedaiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakor, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Amen. And so now we see here the root problem. There was a chain reaction. The people of Judah were not tithing faithfully, even though they had made a formal commitment to do so, which led the Levites and singers and other temple workers not having enough to live on, which led to the Levites, singers, and other temple workers having to go back to their fields to work and make a living for themselves, which led to the neglect of the temple, which led to the priests leasing out this prime real estate in the temple for pagans to use for who knows what. I'm going to highlight a repeated phenomenon here. The people of God had committed so passionately and sincerely not too long ago in chapter 10, verse 39. They said, we will not neglect the house of God, of our God. But now we see that they had so badly forsaken the house of God. How did this happen? I think it started small, maybe one or two families thinking to reduce their tithes of grain, produce, olive oil, wine, livestock, and wood, or not giving their one-third shekel of silver that year. Then others noticed this and saw the advantage to build up their own savings. Then those leftovers were left wondering why they were the only suckers still giving. And so eventually, a lot of them stopped too. And that's why the Levites, singers, and other temple workers didn't have enough to live on. That's why the temple reduced the frequency of their sacrifices and the quality of their festivals and assemblies. You see, it started small and gradually turned into every man for himself at the expense of their corporate temple worship. So let me repeat the first principle again. The church is like an ecosystem that thrives when all of God's people participate in its livelihood. You know, we don't have a temple anymore, but in the New Testament, the church is called the temple of God. And so we, so we can think about this in terms of the church. I think we can also be passionate and sincere when it comes to when we commit to the church, but our sinful natures always creep in. We have thoughts that seem hard, harmless at first. Nobody will notice if I'm not at Sunday celebration. I can just listen to the sermon later online. I don't have, I don't have, I don't have to engage in life group. I mean, people keep it pretty superficial anyways. I, I cannot serve because I need to use non-work hours to relax. You know, there are legitimate reasons not to be at life group or Sunday celebration or to not serve. But if we're honest, there are also a lot of rationalizations for thinking about ourselves, right? Right? The National Geographic Society defines an ecosystem as a geographic area where plants, animals, and organisms, as well as weather and landscapes, work together to form a bubble of life. And I think that the church is like an ecosystem 
with people interacting, intertwining together. And if some parts stop functioning properly, it affects other parts and gradually the whole bubble breaks down. This is why in so many churches, you see 20% of the church doing 80% of the work. Then eventually that 20% gets burnt out and embittered from being the only ones giving of themselves. And then the church plateaus and often it will die a slow death. I don't know about you, but I've seen this and been a part of churches like this, and it is tragic. But the opposite is true too. In fact, the Apostle Paul wrote that Jesus wants his church to be united, mature, and loving. Just look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. When each member is doing their part, their ministry in the church, then it helps all the other parts of the body grow too. Then the whole body is thriving and healthy. I think a great example of this is seeing so many people step up and serve to put together our hybrid Sunday celebrations. This was the co a coordinated effort of many brothers and sisters in Christ participating and thus making gatherings like this possible for people to join on site and for people to join online. And may this be the vision of what our church can be as we reform our church this new season. First, we reform our parts in the church. And for the second way, we keep reforming as God's people until God's redemption story is done. Let's see verses 15 through 22, our practice of dependence. In the second part, Nehemiah constantly had to address the issue of God's people disobeying God's commands regarding the Sabbath, even as they learned about it from God's word. Here's the second principle I want to highlight, I want to elaborate on here. We reinforce necessary dependence on God by obeying the principles of the Sabbath. So let's go ahead and read Nehemiah 13, 15 through 18 now. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the, the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. There was, this was, amen, this was also some time in between those 12 years that Nehemiah served as governor of the province of Judah. The city was bustling and lively again. People were treading wine presses and bringing in heaps of grain into in the villages and bringing their produce into the city. And other people groups even were bringing fish and other goods to sell in the markets. Now, the only problem was, was they were doing this not just on work days, but on the Sabbath too. 
And Nehemiah called this an evil thing and profaning the Sabbath day. This was, in actuality, disobeying the fourth of the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now, the intention of keeping the Sabbath day holy was to honor God who created the world in six days and then rested on, the se on that seventh, that Sabbath day. And the heart of this command was to pause from regular daily activities and set aside the needed time to remember who God is according to his word, perfectly holy, absolutely just, patiently forgiving, faithfully providing, richly gracious, and steadfastly loving. The heart of this commandment was not to test a person's willpower to resist working, but to rekindle trust in all of who God is by reconnecting with him and with others in the covenant community meaningfully. You know, doing regular business on the Sabbath was an ongoing temptation for the people of Israel, dating back way back before the exile. Nehemiah even said later in verse 18 that breaking the Sabbath was one of the direct causes for the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of Israel. So even though Nehemiah's generation had specifically, specifically committed to keep the Sabbath, back in Nehemiah chapter 10, they quickly gave in to the temptation to get more stuff done and to make more money for themselves and their families. Let me repeat the second principle again. We reinforce necessary dependence on God by obeying the principles of the Sabbath. There are some Christians who believe that Sunday should be observed as the Christian Sabbath, and some Christians who believe that Sunday is not the same as the Christian Sabbath. Now, I won't get into any of in, into this. This is an issue that I believe is not a top-tier issue to fight for sound biblical faith. But what I will say is that obeying the principles of Sabbath and actually any command from the scriptures is hard because oftentimes obedience to them puts us at an apparent disadvantage in our world, doesn't it? The temptation to constantly work is real because in our fast-paced work culture where productivity and results are valued above all else, to not work when we could work causes us to get behind of, get behind of others or to lose our advantage over others. And this is why we'll work into the nights and into the weekends and neglect other important things. And notice, I specifically say other important things because I do think work is a valuable activity in life. It's just not the only valuable activity in life. We neglect investing into our family relationships and other friendships. We neglect discipling brothers and sisters in Christ. We neglect building up our own word and prayer ministries and being healthy physically with stuff like properly sleeping, eating, and exercising. The benefit in practicing Sabbath principles is that it reinforces necessary dependence on God, which wrestling through in our hearts and then deciding to obey actually builds up. You see, the development of our faith is a very high priority to God.
Can I warn us of one more thing here? I think that we have to be careful of overestimating our own abilities and underestimating our own sinfulness. When we hear something like, we need to obey the principles of the Sabbath, how many of us are prone to think, but that won't happen to me. I can try to put more on, I can handle more on my plate. That won't happen to me. I can actually multitask this for a long time. And this is a trap of the devil. In our pride, we think that we can handle these small sins, but as they get ignored, they can turn, they can in turn snowball into huge strongholds and do serious damage in our lives. And what we need to say is, I'm weak and prone to sin. So how can I take seriously these principles of the Sabbath and other commands of God? I think this is what Nehemiah had to personally wrestle with as well. Along with each of these confrontations with the people's sins, Nehemiah tried as best as humanly possible to fix these issues. With the issue of the upkeeping of the temple, he kicked out Tobiah from the temple and appointed reliable people to manage the distribution of goods to the priests, Levites, and other temple workers. With the issue keeping, uh, with the issue of keeping the Sabbath, Nehemiah ordered the, the, the to shut the the city gates from the start of the Sabbath to the end of the Sabbath. And three times, Nehemiah says a "Remember Me" prayer. Look at this one from Nehemiah 13.22. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Nehemiah was a good leader who tried as much as possible to remove what tempted people to sin. But all of his corrections were external. The truth was that Nehemiah was not able to change the people on the inside. He knew that for himself, and he asked for favor, in other words, grace, to spare him from his own sinfulness. He appealed to the great, steadfast love of God. Nehemiah's dependence on God was faith that looked ahead to God's promise of a time when he'd transform sin-ravaged, spiritually dead hearts and make them new and alive. God's words would be written on their hearts and they would be his people and he would be their God. And we'll talk about this more in the final point. So first, we reform our parts in the church. And second, we reform our practice of dependence. For the third way, we keep reforming as God's people until God's redemption story is done. Let's see verses 23 through 31, our pursuit of godliness. In this third part, Nehemiah constantly had to address the issue of God's people being unequally yoked with pagan people groups, even as they learned about holiness from God's word. Here's the third principle I want to elaborate on here. We can pursue holiness in our lives because trusting in Jesus makes us holy and accepted before God. This is the last issue that Nehemiah dealt with on behalf of the people of Judah. It was the issue of intermarriage. This was the same issue that Ezra tackled some 10 or 20 years earlier. The people of God didn't separate themselves from the other people groups that also lived in the province of Judah. 
Instead, many took the daughters of these pagan people groups to be their wives. Now Nehemiah observed that half of the children of these mixed marriages did not speak Hebrew at all. And this was not just a loss of their own, of their language and culture. This was a loss of their ability to learn their scriptures, which were, which were in Hebrew, which really was their lifeline to God. Now, I don't want us to think that God was against interracial marriage, that Jews were simply not allowed to marry people from other races. I mean, just look at the famous story of Boaz marrying Ruth, who was actually a Moabite woman. Ruth had vowed to her mother-in-law, your God will be my God. And thus, she joined the covenant community. And then her marriage to Boaz was blessed. The heart of the issue with intermarriage was actually spiritual. You see, becoming unequally yoked together with people who were not worshipers of God as well, always included getting involved with their idolatry and immorality as well. And it was a downward spiral from that point on. So let's read what Nehemiah said when he directly responded to the issue when it arose, and then what he did in response to this issue, and also what he did regarding one specific case. So let's look at Nehemiah 13, 26 through 29. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by, by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherous, treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Amen. Nehemiah reminded them that Solomon, the wisest man to ever walk on earth, was brought down by his relationships with foreign women who led him down the slippery slope of idolatry and other great sins against God. And once again, this is a sobering reminder for us to not overestimate our abilities to be devoted to God and to not underestimate our ability to sin and the danger of sin. Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, one of his sons married Sanbalat's daughter. Sanballat, along with Tobiah, was a longtime enemy of God's people. And do you see the hypocrisy in this? Jehoiada's son would fulfill his duties as priest, doing the sacrifices on behalf of the people of God. And then he would go home and live like a pagan, worshiping idols and living loosely without regard to the law of God. This was a desecration of the priesthood. And Nehemiah's response was very severe. He chased Jehoiada's son away and removed him from his priestly job in the temple. And I want us to pause here and think about these issues. Tithing and maintaining the temple, observing, observing the Sabbath, and marrying people from other people groups. None of these seem so terrible in and of themselves. But each of these things, worship at the temple, honoring the Sabbath, 
and staying set apart, holy for God. These were core to who they were. Additionally, their failure to obey points to the truth that they were fundamentally unable to do what God expected and commanded them to do. Just think about what happened in chapter 12. Just think about what happened just recently. The dedication after, of the wall, after it was finally done, after the revival they'd experienced, after the heartfelt commitment to obey and serve God, after the passionate celebration with the choir singing, inevitably the people of God crashed and burned again and again. So let me repeat the third principle again. We can pursue holiness in our lives because trusting in Jesus makes us holy and accepted before God. In the same way, being a part of the church as God's people who believe in Jesus, practicing our dependence, growing and trusting God for everything in life, and pursuing holiness in God to please and serve God alone. These are core aspects of who we are as Christians. There are no hours in a week that don't count as holy to the Lord. There's no dichotomy between the two hours a week at Sunday celebration and the other 166 hours a week at home, work, and anywhere else. And if we're honest, we could think of a ton of ways that we fail to be consistent with this. We are unable, fundamentally unable, to do what God expects and commands us to do. The emotions and desires to observe and ser- uh, obey and serve God will eventually wear off and we eventually crash and burn. Even how we feel now, just for example, this joy of starting on-site Sunday celebration and the energy that we have to serve and worship the Lord together will eventually, if not already, wear off. Look at Nehemiah's Remember Me prayer here in verse 29. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and, and the Levites. You know, we need this prayer too. We need a prayer like, remember us, O God, because we desecrate everything we touch and break our commitments over and over again. And the great news is God does remember us. God sent us the perfect high priest who did not desecrate himself with sin, but instead consecrated himself to obey God the Father all the way to the cross. Jesus was sacrificed on the cross, and his blood pays the penalty for our sins and makes us clean and holy before God. And in doing so, Jesus secured our redemption forever. And this is the first part of the good news from this scripture. You know, Nehemiah ends in a weird sort of way, doesn't it? There's no neat and tidy, happy ending. This is a cliffhanger. The original audience of this book of scripture are left wanting something more, aren't they? And here's the thing. Nehemiah is the last book in the Old Testament in terms of the historical timeline. There are no other events that are recorded between the end of Nehemiah and the beginning of Matthew. They were waiting for the promised Savior and King to come, the one that the scriptures all pointed towards. 
We now know that this is Jesus, and we know that he came the first time to incarnate and to go to the cross for the sins of the world. And so now, even though the war with sin and death is won, our battle is still going on with sin until Jesus comes and this uh, comes the second time to usher in his final kingdom. And this is when God's redemption story will be done and we will be taken up to eternal glory with Jesus. And so here's how to live in between Jesus' two comings. Uh, in light of Jesus' cross, the first coming, we understand that we cannot make ourselves holy to be accepted by God. Only Jesus' cross can do this for us. But now look at what it says in Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, holy uh, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of your spiritual worship. By the mercy and grace of God, we are already holy and acceptable to God. Now we present ourselves, every part of ourselves, to be living sacrifices to God. Everything we do now can be worshipped to God, and we wait patiently, allowing God to reform us until God's redemption story is done. So there are three ways that we keep reforming as God's people until God's redemption story is done. First, we reform our parts in the church. Second, we reform our practice of dependence. And third, we reform our pursuit of holiness. To conclude, let's go to the life application. Our next steps in light of Nehemiah chapter 13 are to answer these two questions. First, in light of Jesus making us holy and accepted before God, will I receive God's gift of salvation for the first time or renew my faith in God's gift of salvation again? Friends, I hope that this is starting to make sense to you. There is no way to serve our, uh, to save ourselves from our own sin. And we break our commitments to God again and again. But thanks be to God that Jesus is the perfect high priest who stands in our place now and forever. You are made holy and accepted by God only and always because of Jesus. Amen. Second, in light of Jesus making us holy and accepted by, before God, how will I keep reforming in my pursuit of holiness, practice of dependence, or part in the church? Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus demands our whole lives to be living sacrifices, and we can confidently and joyfully put ourselves in the process of allowing Jesus to reform our everyday lives 168 hours a week to be consistent with God's heart. Be open to how God will want to do this in your life. Also, by allowing Jesus to reform how we depend on him through obeying the principles of the Sabbath and playing our part in the local church, we will also grow in our pursuit of holiness. Amen. I'll give us a few moments to meditate and pray through this, as well as to prepare our hearts for observing communion. God bless you.